Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. We also have a guest from Algebris, as Davide Serra. This week, we'll be looking at Deutsche Bank as it announces a big rights issue. Secondly, a look at the senior manager's regime one year on and the extension of that regime into the next tier down within banks. And finally, a look at Goldman Sachs and no more free phone calls. First, though, to Deutsche Bank and Martin. Over the weekend, we had the news that we've been expecting for some time. Deutsche Bank announcing a big rights issue, 8 billion euros. How did it go down? Well, the shares fell 7% on Monday. So that's not great. But it was a bit of a mixed bag. I would say it was a combination of the good, the bad and the downright ugly. On the good side, the bank is finally addressing the long-standing suspicion that it doesn't have enough capital and trying to nip that in the bud and get to a capital ratio of some 14%, which is better than most of its rivals. So that's good. In the bad stakes, there's quite a lot of flip-flopping here, strategic flip-flopping, because they are going to keep Postbank, which they only bought in 2010. They were planning to sell it to raise capital. They couldn't sell it, so they're now planning to keep it. Instead, they're going to float the asset management business, which John Cryan, the chief executive, said was a core part of their business and is one of their most profitable businesses in terms of return on equity. And finally, they're going to reintegrate two halves of their investment bank, which they only separated a couple of years ago. The ugly, I'm afraid, is the returns here are still very weak. JP Morgan Chase analysts estimate that after all of this and €2 billion of extra cost-cutting, Because of the dilution of raising 8 billion euros of capital, the dilution to earnings, they're only going to make 6.5% return on tangible equity next year. And the bank is promising to get to 10% return on tangible equity, but only once conditions are normalised, whenever that is. So, you know, it is very much jam tomorrow, and it could be jam much further out than tomorrow. Well, let's get an investor view on this now. So I've got on the line Davide Serra from Algebris. Davide, welcome. Thank you. Now, you have for some time been a big investor in Deutsche Bank's bonds, particularly their contingent convertible debt, the so-called COCOs. You've had quite a nice time of it, haven't you? Yes. Listen, Deutsche Bank for us has been one of the best investments we made uh, time of stress last year. Uh, we acquired around the 70 mark, and it's now very close to par. And fundamentally, our view has been Deutsche Bank, it's unprofitable, but it's sound and safe. And I think what we're doing right now, in my view, will allow them to move forward. So over the last 20 years, Deutsche Bank has always been undercapitalized on a leverage ratio. If you look at a simple crude measure, they're going to be at a leverage ratio of 4.1, which is within global standards. And if you were to issue a bit more additional tier one, they're going to reach the 4.5 mark. Secondly, 
I think the strategic flip-flop is actually a realization that the environment has changed. Long term, I think you want to be strong in Germany. It's one of the strongest economies in the world. Keeping post-bank is good. Secondly, the split of the investment bank was to basically end the days of the casinos of the Anshu Jain gang. And I think putting it together on client feedback, cost-cutting, it's interesting and necessary. Third, asset management, you see what's happening globally, in order to compete, cannot be inside the bank. Regulation, talent, fiduciary trust, focus on what you need to do is just not aligned with the banking business. So I think quoting a minority will allow that business to be more standalone, think independently, and as a result, be able to grow and compete. And maybe tomorrow, like happened in Amundi with Societe Generale and Credit Recall, use this strategically to make an independent partner. So I think overall it's true. It looks like a flip-flop, but it makes sense. I think shareholders this time are likely to follow the capital increase with enthusiasm. And the reason is because I think if rates were to rise between you know, 70 and 80 basis points linearly across the curves over the next two, three years, just this alone should be able to allow Deutsche Bank to make a 10% return on tangible equity which ain't great, but remember, capital has gone up by a massive 30 billion euro over the last 10 years. And as a result, you know, you're looking at a ballpark, the same peak earnings as is achieved in the past. Clearly lower ROE simply because now they have much more capital, which makes it safer and better for clients. So at what point does that turn you into an equity investor? Because you've invested in the debt because you believe it was undervalued and that Deutsche Bank was never really a credit risk. You believed in the solidity of the bank. Maybe that's now completely been reflected in the uptick in the valuation of the debt. But at what point do you see it as an attractive equity play? I think it's getting there. My view, you know, the rights issue will be down a 39% discount to TERP. That's the theoretical X rights price. Yeah. So basically, it's a big discount. It's like you go on sale with a 40% off. Yep. And typically, you know, I like to buy on sale myself as an investor. And 40% discount to theoretical X right price. It's attractive. And so for the first time, I think we're running our numbers and haven't made up my mind yet. But let's say it's the first time in a very long time that we might consider an equity investment in Deutsche Bank. And I think right now has become investable. I think clients will come back, corporate, institutional, wealth management, retail. I wouldn't be surprised if today were to be one of the best days where people put money in Deutsche Bank because there's been so much noise on the fourth quarter. And most importantly, I think management focused, buying the bullet, moving forward, and this cost commitment and simplification targets, I think, will eventually deliver. And remember, the bedrock is Germany. You know, it can be that bad. Absolutely. Let me bring Martin in here for a final word. Amazingly bullish, Davide. But let me just ask you, don't you think they've got to cut 2 billion euros of costs They're going to lose revenue there, aren't they? I mean, where is the growth going to come from? And they've cut bonuses by 80%. So there's a danger of franchise risk here, isn't there? They're going to lose their best people. Their market share is going to be eroded. As an equity investor, you want to see growth. You want to be betting on a flourishing, growing investment banking house, don't you? Yes and no. I think in my experience, and remember, we made money historically even in UBS, these organizations are just too fat, too many people. So... Today, management, they have an example. In any situation, you have 10 salespeople, you cut the two underperforming, you reshuffle the clients, the remaining eight do better, are more highly paid, and clients are happy. 
So, you know, this company went from 45 to 38 IT systems. It's a long way to go. And so, in my view, they'll be able to keep on cutting costs and keeping revenue flat. I'm not saying growing them, but that will increase the bottom line profitability. And given the significant discount to tangible and theoretical X price, you're getting it very cheap. Now, the reason why it's not exciting, because it's a show-me situation again. You know, over the last 10 years, how many times have we heard from Deutsche Bank, this is it, we're moving forward, and we're going to deliver. So far, there has been very little delivery. But I think the worst nightmare are behind Deutsche Bank. Current management is addressing them. They are putting an end to what I call the Anshu Jain legacy. And so I think it's becoming investable. And I think there will be an attractive entry point over the next couple of weeks. Okay, well, on that note, Davide, we should leave Deutsche Bank behind. But thank you ever so much for joining us. Let's move on to our second story of the day. Caroline, you've been looking at the senior managers regime in the UK. This is the regulatory rule book that governs the top management of banks. It's one year in. And also, we've got another deadline, haven't we, for the next tier down of management within the banks? Yeah, that's right. So the senior managers regime has been in force now for lenders and insurers a year today. And then the certification regime asked firms themselves to work out who were the material risk takers that could cause significant harm to their institution. And they had to do that a year ago. But what they've had to do by today's deadline is deem whether those individuals are fit and proper. And that's historically been a test that the regulator itself applies rather than the firms. So does this make it an easier test for these institutions? I mean, if they have to self-certify, they've hardly got a good record in the past of self-certifying other things. Well, that's a good question. And what the regulator hasn't yet provided is a breakdown of any differential between those two things that the firms have been asked to do. A year ago, identify the significant harm functions and then by today decide whether they were fit and proper. But that would certainly make for interesting reading. And we don't know whether any institutions, whether any banks have self-identified people who are not fit and proper. Not as yet, no. Will that be made public? It would be unlikely for any individual by name to be identified. We might be able to get the numbers in aggregate, yes, but it would probably take a freedom of information request. You're very good at those. I look forward to those data. Thank you very much for that, Caroline. Let's move on to our third and final topic of the day. Goldman Sachs, it has been revealed, is not allowing its bankers to make free phone calls anymore. Is that right, Laura? Well, they're still allowed to make free phone calls to the bank's clients. They're still allowed to make free work-related phone calls. What they're not allowed to do is have an iPhone, which is effectively a free-for-all. So they have an iPhone which is fully paid for by the bank and they use it for their own Facebook, Twitter, what have you, as well as personal phone calls. So the bank is now saying... If you choose to have an iPhone, which is your own, rather than having a company issue BlackBerry, then you can expense certain calls which are work related and you get a certain data allowance and you could expense roaming, but they aren't going to pay the entire bill for you. For a bank that's part of an industry that is pretty profligate, I think it's fair to say, this seems an extraordinarily penny pinching move. Well, people familiar with the policy have been saying that it isn't necessarily harsher than what's in place now. What they've essentially done is they've introduced a firm-wide global policy on this. Previously, it was decided at various desk levels. So in some desks, in some areas, they've been doing this for years. Maybe in some areas, they've been doing something even harsher. 
then figures involved are going to be fairly tiny. So there is a question whether it's going to be worth the aggro it'll cause for the bankers because it's not so much the money, it's the kind of admin hassle of having to go through your calls, see which ones were work, which ones aren't and actually itemise that. That's just a hassle and it's a level of friction that when you think about the sums of money that are involved for the bank, I mean, the bank is working on deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars and even in some cases tens of billions. So it does seem like it's taking penny pinching to quite an extreme level and it certainly isn't clear to me that they're going to get back enough reward from this to actually justify the friction and the unhappiness it could cause for some of their bankers. Now, this is a Goldman-specific story, but does it tell a broader tale about Wall Street cracking down on expenditure? It's a kind of mixed bag because in some cases, banks have been doing this for years. Other bankers who I talked to were horrified that their bank would even consider this. So it does seem to be something which has been in the industry for maybe four to five years. Goldman, for all its aura about being the best investment bank and the most lavish and everything, they've actually got very good cost control compared to the industry. So you wouldn't necessarily assume that if one of the most profitable banks is doing it, that means all the banks are doing it. The reason one of the most profitable banks is doing it, that's kind of how they become and they stay one of the most profitable. So we tend to find actually that some of the banks who are doing worst in terms of their own finances have the most generous policies towards their employees. Banks across the pack are trying to cut down on costs. I mean, the European banks have some very specific cost-cutting projects now. I'm thinking about Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse in particular. And that will take in a whole range of things. Stuff like if you are a chartered accountant, they might look again at whether they will pay your fees for your charter. They look at how much they pay for bankers to subscribe to things like us. So in some cases, it's a lot harder than it was to get your subscription to the FT paid for or to get numerous other subscriptions paid. So they do look at all this kind of fairly small level costs when they do these big programmes. And in aggregate, it can add up. I mean, doing a phone in isolation isn't going to get you very far. But it's also about the culture. So the idea is that if you know that your bank is going to be very focused around these small things, it's meant to set the tone and it's meant to make you think twice when you're taking clients out for a very lavish dinner or when you're ordering the most expensive wine on the Amex or when you're booking flights or when you're booking hotels. So it's about setting a culture, which is that we don't waste money and we are going to ask you to account for how you spend money, all the money, not just the big money. I still remember Goldman's post-crisis downgrading of their biscuits in meetings. That which must have been very hard for you. It was. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Laura here in the studio. Also, Davide Serra, our guest from Algebris. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>